Wonderful, majestic world around us. It's time for Dear Science. Thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow. Kia ora, Alan. I think everyone heard Alan's rapturous <laughs> laugh there before. <laughs> oh, Winston, what a Winston Peters and horse racing. This is good stuff. This is this is what we need to hear. This wow. is the real journalism, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Anyway, um, how are we? So good. All the better now that you have. It's gonna be yeah. It's gonna be a fun way. It was a good start. Eh? It was a good start. We were we were reading your pieces before, and there's some interesting interesting stuff in there. Oh well, I hope so. Hell, as always, isn't there every week? That's why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm here. Hopefully, <laughs> sheesh. What do you develop first for us? Right. Today? Well, enough enough of this hilarity. We're getting to the serious mm. stuff to begin with, and this is to do with diabetes. Very serious. Indeed, very very serious. How many people suffer from diabetes worldwide? There we go. There's your first question of the day. Um, 500 million. Well done. Sheesh. 400, really? 425 million. Wow. Sheesh. Very good. That's okay. suspect. That's that is so <laughs> suspect. There's no way that you pulled that number. I'm kind of impressed. That but is that is a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And of those 425 million, you've got 75 million roughly that um, take insulin injections every day. Mm. And... Thankfully, I'm not one of them. I don't know what this is like, but I can only assume that it must be, uh, for want of a better word, no pun intended, a pain yeah. just to have to remember to do that all the time and everything and living with something like that. And probably especially if you don't like needles, I guess it's got to be pretty awful. And um, you're sort of thinking, well, why do we have to have injections of insulin? Why can't we just take it orally? And the answer to that is that insulin gets chewed up in your stomach by uh, stomach acids and enzymes and stuff like that. Okay, So it doesn't then get to the place that it's got to be, um, which is... The pancreas? Yeah, well, <clears throat> as we're going to see, it's it's the liver that does all the work. So ah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's um, it's generated in the pancreas. But mm. you know, when we're talking the artificial stuff, then uh, we've got to get it in there somewhere. And yes, so you can't take it orally. So the other way of getting things into the body is injections yes. and yes that's all well and good but again injections don't get it specifically to the place where it needs to go mm. um, and so what can then happen is that uh, it goes into muscles it goes into your fat and in fact it can sort of uh, accumulate there in your body fat and that can actually lead to hypoglycemia so that can lead to low blood sugar in, in certain cases if it sort of accumulates in the wrong place. So we've got this molecule that which, which is insulin and we need to somehow get it to the right place in the body. Yes. So uh, we know that injection, yep, that's the way they do it now but it's not... Uh, the you know an absolutely brilliant foolproof way, and seemingly we can't take it orally until very possibly now. Mm. Okay, so obviously what you need to do is to somehow to be able to protect the insulin molecule. If you're going to take this thing orally, you've got to protect it so that it can get through the stomach, through the di digestive tract, and to the place where you want it to go, which in this case is the liver. Yes. Okay. So. A few really, really, really smart people put their heads together and thought, right, how, how can we do this? And, I mean, this really is seriously, seriously clever stuff. So there's a bunch of workers in <clears throat> both Australia and Norway 
which is not not sort of the places that you would imagine. Yeah, um, sort of big scientific advances and stuff. No disrespect to the Aussies and the Norwegians, <laughs> of course, but you know you normally sort of think of you know the states and China and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, what they have done is that they have come up with a method of encapsulating the insulin molecule. So you're putting a protective coating around it um, in little nanocarriers. Okay, so basically, you're you've got your let's say insulin as a as a cargo, yes. or a little um, cargo carrier, or whatever <laughs> you want to call it, a nano carrier or whatever, and that can basically go through your stomach, your digestive system, um, immune to all of those nasty things that would chop it up and render it useless. Incredible. So the way that they do that is they use silver of all things. So they, they, they use little things called silver sulfide quantum dots. Quantum dots? Quantum dots. I remember quantum we dots, We talked yes. about quantum dots. Yes, yes. indeed. Okay. You remember quantum dots? <laughs> uh, oh. Right, so quantum, quantum dots, dots, really, yes. really, really tiny little, for want of a better word, nanoparticles, okay? They used to call them nanoparticles, but now it's all sexy to call them quantum dots, apparently, because <laughs> that's what you do, because that gets funding. So they get these tiny, tiny, tiny nanoparticles of silver sulfide, they can attach the insulin molecule onto those and then they coat the whole insulin molecule with um, a polymer made up of glucose in part, okay, and um, a thing called chitosan, which is a, a natural polymer. So it's like flies and stuff are made out of chitosan and crab shells and things. And it's, it's, it's a natural polymer. And because it's natural, you've got enzymes that can snip it up that can sort of oh. okay that, that can basically break it up so they chose those molecules for a reason so glucose and chitosan so that covers your insulin which is coated on the nanoparticle and then what they've done is that they have um encapsulated this in a block of chocolate <laughs> so a little sugar-free chocolate and they've tested this on so far rats and mice and baboons in fact excellent and what they've found is that, yeah, this does seem to actually work. And the, and the beauty of it is, this is the really, really clever part, is that they chose their encapsulating uh, substance so that it would be immune to the stomach acids and the digestive enzymes. But when it gets into the liver uh, and your blood sugar is too high, then it knows, the liver knows, to release particular molecules, oh, enzymes, wow. that will chop up the coating and allow release of the insulin. This okay? is an incredible wow. thing. And that, and that only works when your blood sugar's high. It doesn't work when your blood sugar's low. So it just sort of sits there when your blood sugar's low. All of a sudden, your blood sugar gets a little bit high. We've got these enzymes released. Chop, 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 chop. Out comes the insulin. Done. It sounds like a Nobel Prize in the, in the wings. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just seriously clever stuff. It really is. And there's a hell of a lot of work that's gone into this. You read, yeah. the, you read the paper and you think, oh, my goodness, there's a, there's a lot of person hours and, and having done all of this stuff. It's very, very good stuff. Now, obviously, and, and again, I, I sort of decry this um, sort of thing quite a bit, where people tend to release sort of results without actually having done you know, mm. that they'll work yet. Now, I'm, I think this is this is different. I think we can get excited about this because nice. it has been done sort of on animal trials and stuff like that. So they're now they're going to start human trials next year. Awesome. And they reckon that all going well, they might have this maybe going in sort of two to three years' time. 
is so such good news for people. Today. If there's anybody out there who you know has to rely on a Nichelin pen and stuff, then um, you know there could be, there could be very good news. You know, just around the corner with any luck. So um, you know, it's fingers crossed for this because it just sounds, you know, literally life changing. Incredible. I so I yeah. don't even know that baboons got diabetes. To be fair. Well, I don't know about the, they the they actual... They're just, like, <laughs> they're just testing it? I think they're just testing it, yeah. And oh, so they're, cool. yeah, yeah. And so they're looking at um, how it's released, et cetera, et cetera. So Incredible. What is in there. So, um, you know, really, really, really clever stuff. So that's what science is all about. So yeah. Thank you, science. What, was it, what do you have up next for us, Alan? Um, up next, um, oh, yeah, sorry to be a downer, but we're going to talk about the atmosphere and carbon dioxide and global warming and climate change and, you know... All those ever pressing issues. Sadly, yes, yes. So it was, you know, we started off with a laugh, and now it's just <laughs> got in dark real quick. <laughs> a bit downhill from there. So um, we know that the increasing CO two concentration in the atmosphere is not good. Mm. Okay, and it is leading to all sorts of fluctuations in the climate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Call it what you will: global warming, climate change, or whatever. It's just obvious that it's not a good thing. So what we need to do is to minimise the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere anthropogenically. Um, so we really need to sort of find an alternative to fossil fuels, obviously, um, which is solar power, and people are busy trying to do that. We also need to minimise the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere from other sources. And mm. so there are some workers in uh, the USA and Australia who have just identified another possible, quite significant source of uh, CO2 going into the atmosphere every year, and that is from bottom trawling. Interesting. Which, yeah, which surprised me. Okay, and so... Um, sort of places in the world where you've got fairly sort of shallow offshore um, waters, such as, say, the Baltic Sea, the North Sea, the East China Sea, all sort of around there. Um, bottom trawling apparently is quite common and just involves just basically dragging a large fishing net over the bottom and seeing what you come up with, you know. Wow. Not particularly scientific. But the trouble with this is that it disturbs the sediment on the bottom of the ocean. Okay, now, what happens... Right, well, first of all, we've got truckloads of living things in the ocean, don't we? Like yes. Truckloads. What happens when they die? They decay. Well, yeah, well, that's that's the thing, okay? Get so they're going <laughs> to... So they're going to the drop down to the bottom, okay? Yeah. And on the bottom of the ocean, so you've got all of these sort of ex-living things, and they are made up primarily of carbon-containing molecules, and... For those of you who know any chemistry, the, the, the sink for carbon-containing molecules is CO2. Okay, mm. So every carbon-containing mo molecule on the planet should eventually end up as CO2 if it can get in touch with oxygen. Okay, So on the bottom of the sea, you don't have a heck of a lot of oxygen. And so you get a lot of dead stuff on the bottom and it just sort of accumulates there. And providing that you don't um, disturb it, then it's just going to sit there quite happily and it's going to decay by other means, so anaerobically rather than aerobically. Okay, So it doesn't necessarily end up as CO2, provided you just leave it. Hmm. Okay, Now, the trouble with bottom trawling is that what happens is that they come along with these big nets, 
run them across the bottom of the ocean and that disturbs all of this sediment and it, what happens then is it resuspends in the water. And as soon as it resuspends in the water, then it can start getting converted to CO2. Okay. And you might think, well, that's going to be sort of a minimal process, it's pretty pretty slow or whatever. But they have done some calculations and they reckon that the amount of CO2 that you get coming into the atmosphere from this sort of process is roughly around about the same as sort of the world's aviation um, CO2. Yeah, yeah. So the amount of CO2 that's put in what? by aviation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a wee bit, Okay. I've got two presenters looking at me with open eyes. <laughs> that just seems... <laughs> I know, that's, that, that's a lot, okay? So... And we, there, was, there was no research up until now about this or ideas about this being a... That's a good question. Um, I'm sure there must have been something done sort of in the past, you know, this doesn't just come out of nowhere, but basically what these authors are trying to do is to use the data that have been collected over the past, I think since about the 90s, I think they've been mm. sort of collecting data, and they've been trying to model it. So they've been trying to sort of um, sort of look forward and see, you know, what this is going to do in the future, what it's doing currently and what it could potentially do in the future, you know. So, um, so what they're estimating is that when you disturb the sediment on the bottom, that their estimate is roughly about 60% of the carbon-containing stuff that you've disturbed will then stay suspended in the water and it will then eventually uh, turn into CO2. And that process from getting out of the water into the atmosphere, it can take sort of years. They, they're, they're sort of looking at around about nine years or so. And so with a, within about nine years, they say about 60% of that material will have turned into CO2 and will be into the atmosphere. Which is really, really not a good thing, mm. um, you know, and that's and that's obvious. And now, the other problem is that um, as soon as you start getting CO two formed in water, then that leads to ocean acidification as well, because you get this thing called carbonic acid, mm. which is what you get when CO two reacts with water. And so that makes locally where you've done the bottom trawling, that makes it locally more acidic, and you know, sea life doesn't like seawater that's too acidic and so therefore sea life's going to die out and you know it's just multiple it's, it's just not a good story all around really so um so you can sort of think of the seabed as being sort of similar to let's say forests on land where you know they act essentially as a carbon sink yeah um until you do something to them you know like you chop down the forests, then they all turn into CO2. You burn the forests, then they turn into CO2. You leave the seabed undisturbed, then it's all good. You start disturbing it, then it can turn back into CO2. And um, up into the atmosphere, global warming, etc., etc., etc. So um, that is just out uh, this week. And, um, you know, it's really not good. Now, how the heck they're going to uh, persuade the fishing nations that do all this sort of stuff to not do bottom trawling? Yeah. You know, I don't know. Where money's involved, um, it seems that the environment comes second. So, Where did you find this article? Ah, what journal was it? It's the da-da-da-da-da. I should have written that down. I normally do. <laughs> it seems like... A very big news but this is the first i've actually heard of it there you go you, there you yeah. go this is you know dear science we break the big <laughs> stories <laughs> um a quick google search will 
we'll get you to it. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the exact name of the journal, but it was sort of out like this week, last week. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Oh, here we go. Nick will find the journal. Here he goes. He will. Is there any way to sequester that carbon back down? Is it just like planting more trees and stuff like that? Well, planting more trees will certainly help. Yes. Yep. Yep. Mm. So, in, yeah, any way of doing that sort of thing is, is going to be a good thing. But um, it's really not great. So, um, we'll see how this plays out. You're right. I mean, it does deserve more um, more of an audience, I think. And, yeah. you know, hopefully the um, big stations will pick it up. And, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Checks out the work. The work was published in Frontiers in Marine Science. That's the one. That's the one. Thank you. Yep. 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 Yeah, it just seems like I don't know. I see a lot online about Taylor Swift's private jet mm. emissions and whatnot. <laughs> but Hell, she's nothing compared to this. Yeah. yeah. yeah wow. <laughs> this incredible way. I've never actually considered this or even thought of this as a something that contributes to, to global warming. Yeah, well, there's all, there's all sorts of things there, and there's methane hydrates on the bottom of the ocean as well, those sorts of things, and they can, if they're made unstable, then the methane will just out in the atmosphere, and methane's way worse than CO2 as a greenhouse gas, and oh, dear, oh dear. goes on. What do you have up for us last time? Right, something, a happy something story? better, a happy story, yes. a happy story, dogs. There we go. We love Dog, everyone, see, instant smile, dogs. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Got called out. We love them. <laughs> Who doesn't love dogs, really? Yeah. You know. I mean, uh, quite a lot of people. Why? Really. I don't, and they're I don't dead know. wrong about that. Yeah, if you've ever walked a dog, people like pull away, which is fair enough, but I just, I don't understand. Mm. I can't sympathise. Is it the wagging tails? Well, is that what, that's is that what the happy face. People, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about. That's what we're going to be talking about is the wagging tails and why do dogs wag their tails? Because they're happy. Ah, ah, but are they? This <laughs> <laughs> so again, there's a question that you sort of think, well, why didn't anybody ask this earlier, number one, and B, how the hell do you get a research grant to study sort of dogs wagging their tails, number two. And um, so wagging doesn't necessarily mean that they're happy. So there's some workers in Italy who've sort of set their minds to this, and so what they've found is that, and I, th I think this is fairly obvious, that wagging is to do with communication yes, rather than anything else, okay? Now, here we go. And so everyone who's listening who's got a dog is going to now go and do this. If you wag more to the right-hand side, if your dog is wagging its tail more to its right-hand side, then it's interested in something and it wants to approach that something. Wow. Okay? If it wags to the left-hand side then that signals uncertainty and withdrawal, apparently. Okay. Apparently. And the, that's exactly the word I want to hear in science. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's wagging low and near to the legs, then that means submission and insecurity. Okay. Crazy. So there you go. So that's what wagging means. So wagging doesn't necessarily mean that you're happy. How did they... Even oh, don't, you know. Can I? <laughs> I didn't read it in that much detail, but, you know, this, this is what they found. So, and the other thing, the other thing that's interesting about um, dogs wagging their tails is that there's a whole lot of other canines out there that don't wag their tails. And so the nearest sort of relative is the wolf. Yeah. They're not waggers, apparently. They, 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 they don't get into that. And so, of course, you've got to come up with some hypothesis as to why that might be the case and so these Italian folk have said well it might be due to domestication mm. okay and the fact that we've domesticated the dogs 
And here's here's a way out one. This is this is what they're saying that they reckon that humans like something that's rhythmic. We we like mm. rhythms apparently. Okay, wagging is a rhythm, and so therefore the humans would prefer dogs that wagged more because it's rhythmic, and we humans like rhythms. Now that's a hypothesis. How the hell you would go about proving that? Um, is anybody's guess. And as usual on Dear Science, more research is needed. Yeah, that's incredible. That is really <laughs> incredible. You've got to go home and check out Mila and see what she's doing. Yes, yes. Are we wagging to the right or are we wagging to the left today, Mila? <laughs> <laughs> oh. are, are we happy or are we insecure? You know, that's, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that would be fascinating. Certainly the next dog I come across, I'm going to see yeah. which side it's wagging on. So. <laughs> Well, thank you, Dr. Blackman. That was awesome. Oh, very yeah. formal there, Nicholas. Goodness. Wow. <laughs> I'm feeling so. And thank you to Science too. And to Motat. And to Motat. Thank you very much, Motat, for sponsoring this. Well, I didn't know that before. Dear Science, thanks to Motat, the museum inspiring the innovators of tomorrow.